Fellow fabricators, stone shop owners from across the fruited plain and beyond, this is the Fab Lab Podcast, and I am your host, Aaron Crowley. So glad to be tuning in with you for another episode as we talk about pricing with my good friend, Ed Young from FabricatorsCoach.com. Now, pricing is obviously important right now because everybody's costs are up, so everybody's raising their prices. Question is, are you? Fellow fabricator, this is an incredibly important topic. If your costs are going up and your prices don't reflect that, it means your profit is being eroded. It may be completely erased, but inflation isn't the only reason or justification to raise prices. You've got to raise, you've got to have pricing within your business that reflects the great value that you provide your customer. You've got to understand, in many cases, the market will bear and is willing to pay more for the value that you currently offer your customer. So you got to raise your prices. You got to be prepared. You got to have a strategy. You got to understand how important it is. And in this conversation, we discuss a whole bunch of angles on this pricing conversation and on this pricing topic. I know you're going to enjoy it. Here's my interview with Ed Young. Hey, Ed, welcome back to the Fab Lab podcast. Hey, Aaron, thanks for having me back. I, uh, it's, it's been a while. I thought maybe I'd kind of worn out my welcome after last year. I didn't know. <laughs> No, it's funny. You and I have been chatting here for about the last 20 minutes, and it just dawned on me as I was welcoming you on officially that you're the only guest I've had on twice. And actually, you've been on, this would really be the fourth time, the, the two interviews we did, part one, part two, and then you guest hosted that episode, and then you're, you're back. So this is kind of historic uh, milestone territory here, having you back uh, again, and I am really excited about our conversation today. Well, I appreciate that very much. Honored to, honored to be the only one that's been here twice. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a junkyard dog scenario or, uh, <laughs> or what, but I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Now, well, looking at the stats from your last episode, the, the one you guest hosted on, um, mm -hmm. you know, the hamburger uh, uh, analogy, it, yeah. the, the, the statistics on that were overwhelmingly positive, um, far, far better than any pot. I mean, I'm just being completely honest here, way exceeding my best podcast as a host. So anyway, wow. congratulations on that. Thank it, you. It, yeah. It, sacred cows, sacred cows make the best hamburger. Uh, that's, uh, I got people today that still talk about that. Yeah. It, that's, it's that's strange. Yeah. It's it is very very popular and very well received. So anyway, congratulations on that. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I didn't, didn't know that. Yeah. Well, hey. Well, let's get talking about this conversation on pricing. You had sent out an email and had written an article on just the topic of pricing. And boy, when I when I saw that, I was like, oh, we gotta maybe maybe Ed would come back and talk about that because I think from my perspective, it's such an important such an important topic. And um, so, yeah, maybe let's just get right into that. Maybe for those who haven't seen the article, haven't read the article or saw the email that you'd sent out, give us just a brief overview of, of what you were putting out there in that, uh, in that article and, and how it relates to pricing in this era that we live in right now. Certainly be glad to. Um, the article title is um, how much work can my shop handle? And it's all about the relationship between your shop capacity and your, your pricing formula. Mm. Uh, if you want to read the article, you can get it. It came out in May on Slippery Rock Gazette. There's also a copy on the uh, blog tab of fabricatorscoach.com. And I think we'll put a, uh, hopefully we'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes. Yep. But, you know, if you think about your shop, you've got a certain capacity. You can get a certain number of kitchens a day, a certain number of square feet a day, however you measure that. But he also need to think about what's the impact of the different kitchen configurations as they run through the shop. And the comparison that I use is, you know, your regular kitchen with that just has maybe an L and a rectangle, and you've got a you know freestanding stove and a undermount sink, and it's a really simple you know quart three cm quartz job versus a kitchen that's got the same square footage but it's got a raised bar top with a full height splash between the bar top and the countertop. And oh, by the way, it's made out of porcelain, so you've got a ton of miters and backing that you've got to use and all that. And the, the common response I get when I bring that up is people say, well, we, we add for that. We've got that covered. And the challenge I made in the article was, well, think about your current financial structure for your business. And what if all you made was that raised bar top porcelain job? I mean, you wouldn't do that in real life, but if you want to check your pricing, Say, okay, how many of those can I get through my shop in a day or in a week? 
What's that revenue going to look like? What's the profit look like that? What's my P&L going to look like if that's all I did for a week or for a month? That's a pretty good sanity check on your pricing. Because what I'm finding when I do some of this analysis for folks is that while we've got add-ons for trip charges, bump outs, all sorts of other stuff, we a lot of times aren't covering the real Im financial impact of those things. Meaning the pricing doesn't reflect the true cost of actually delivering well, the, not just the cost, but the impact on capacity. Because when you get that really complex job that comes through, it's consuming time you could spend making a lot more rectangles and L's. Mm -hmm. And so what you, and it's not that you want to be necessarily be in one market or the other, but recognizing how many of which type can you get through the shop in a day and which one's generating cash for you faster. Right. And, and it's that capacity mentality, I think, that's key. Which is limited to whatever your max capacity is so if that more complex job that doesn't have enough revenue or dollars attached to it displaces one that does you've kind of shot yourself in the foot and haven't yeah. priced it you know, uh, you know you haven't priced it relative to the amount of work and the amount of capacity that it consumes or utilizes um within the shop yeah and there's some fairly simple metrics that you and I've talked about in the past you know throughput operating expense uh, your uh, daily dollar demand I think is uh, the term that you use uh, all those metrics are really good metrics for measuring this kind of thing and the article talks a little bit about that but what happens is somebody says well okay that that raised countertop porcelain job is worth one and a half of my regular jobs you do the math sometimes it's worth two or three of the other jobs in terms of how much capacity it consumes mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, some of the, some of the, and it's not just, some of that's pricing, all right, how do you price the job? Some of it is, how do you run the job? Uh, I had a client that was really making a concerted effort to do a lot of porcelain work. And that's, that's part of what I got thinking about with this article. And they were getting heavy into porcelain, probably 40% of their volume was porcelain. Wow. And they had a manual bridge saw Whew. cutting all their miters. And then, of course, hand fab and everything else. And, you know, we ran the math and said, you know, if you go out and buy a dedicated miter machine, here's the financial, it pay for itself in like two weeks. In their case, pretty good size shop, okay? <laughs> but just the impact on how much capacity you're freed up and how much more work they get through the shop. I mean, they were at the point, they would only take one or two of those jobs a week and they had much more demand than that. So they had to figure something out. So it's, it's capacity, it's how you run your shop, it's how you price, it's pulling all those things together. So you make sure that you're making good money when you run these jobs through your shop, because if you don't, there's a consequence, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you bring up, a, you know, you know, something I hadn't been even been thinking about the daily dollar demand. You know, there's the the very common metric that, that a lot of stone shops will default to, which is, well, how many square feet are you doing? Mm -hmm. Or how many kitchens a week are you doing? Where those are necessary measurements. You, you, you do need to know that. And it, it, it's more reflective of the physical capacity of how much, how many countertops can move through here. But if you, if you fixate on that without the added <laughs> dimension, how many dollars does that generate? Hey, great. We generated, you know, more square feet than we ever have, but it was all porcelain and it took us 50% more time. So our overtime now just destroyed all the, the profit. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if you don't, if you don't have that dollar, as well, you're you're sort of flying blind as it relates to your pricing, and it's like, well, well, maybe in a in a practical sense, you've got a fabricator who's looking at this job, they're assessing how long it's going to take, and what can we charge, or you know, that's one question is what what can we charge to get the job, which I think is kind of the wrong question to ask, but I think it's still a very common because you, you got to get the work, sure. uh, but how many dollars is it going to contribute? And does that add up at the end of the week when you've got another L shape or a rectangle that's already ready to go? And it's going to generate a certain number of dollars and a certain number of hours. Um, you know, asking that question is um, not only how much can we charge, but how much do we have to charge for mm -hmm. those numbers to work out so you can generate enough revenue to cover the costs and put money in your pocket, which is the, the main goal. What yeah, is yeah, that? Put money in your pocket. What are you doing? Why are you there? Right. Right.
Right. You know, I got I got I'll have folks from time to time asking, you know, help come in and evaluate my my pricing structure. I don't think I'm pricing things right. And and it it's because they have the the mentality or the mindset that you talked about, square footage and, and market. And you can't ignore market reality. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really critical to understand, you know, we already know intuitively that porcelain raised bar top job is going to take a lot more time than a regular rectangles. The question, and that's a good intuitive, and that intuition's right. But what I find is when you do the math, you get numbers, you get data, and now we can quantify that intuition and say it's a lot more. How much is a lot? Is it 1.5? Is it 1.8? Is it 2.5? And what I find a lot of times when I work with folks and we do this analysis, we find out, hey, wait a minute, this is a whole lot more impact than I realized. That doesn't mean you stop doing that work. It means okay. That's a factor in your business model, your business strategy. You know, the, the client that I mentioned that 40% of the business was porcelain and they wanted to do more. Well, it meant that in order to do that and make, a, make money at it, they had to change some of their equipment in their shop. And it meant they had to look at how they ran their, their business a different way. And, and it's just part of informing those decisions so you're making good business decisions. It doesn't mean you quit doing that kind of work. Yeah. And, you know, essentially, um... I guess one thing that comes to, to mind is the how much do we have to charge for this to work? And then you know, there's this temptation or this fear, you know, of because of, the market is reality. The market will bear a certain amount and the, the client will tolerate a certain price based on the value you're going to provide for them. Um, but there's this there's this tension or this, I don't know if it's fear or if it's a whole bunch of motivations, but some folks are charging less than the market would bear. It's mm-hmm. just like you, you should be theoretically charging the maximum that the market will bear. Yep. And then asking if I do it at this rate or whatever this customer is willing to pay, you still have to ask the question, does it fit within the, the model of the business? Is the amount of work that I have to do to deliver this going to generate enough dollars to you know, uh, make the money? Um, if not, then, you know, Hey, I, from a business standpoint, you're better off passing on the job. (laughs) And that's a, that's a tough one to do. You know, it's tough to give up work and you need work. And and quite frankly, over the next, you know, six, 12, 18 months, depending on on what forecasts you subscribe to economically, a lot of people are going to be asking these same questions. And I think part of the challenge is, if you don't do this type of analysis, then when you get, you know, you have your contractor who's been a good customer of yours for, for years and years comes in and says, look, I, you know, you got to cut your price or I'm going to buy from somebody else. What do you do? Well, mm-hmm. if you don't have the data, it's really tough to have that dis- discussion. And making that decision has got to be done within the context of the business strategy and the business condition. And that's where, you know, your early episodes where you talk about daily dollar demand and, and how you calculate that and how you use that, I think are, are really, really helpful because or I, they're more than helpful. They're essential in my mind, because if you don't understand that and you don't have a good sense of, all right, what are you selling out there? You know, if you're just doing product at a price, you're just selling countertops like every other judge selling countertops. Yeah, you're going to be subject to a lot of price pressure. But if you spent the time to do the marketing, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about, about no list before we, we started recording. Um, if you've done, just take the time to do the marketing and put together the marketing message for what problems are you solving for your customers? Yeah, all kind of top shops solve the same problems for the same types of customers, but how do you do that better or differently than somebody else? Then how do you get that message out there? You, you use the term value. Now you're looking at value proposition, not so much a price point. And that's a big key to, to dealing with what's going to be coming at us over the next year, year and a half. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the, the value side of it. I, I think there is, number one, understanding what, you know, or maybe understanding that there are, there are things that the customer values and is willing to pay for. And yet there seems to be such a fixation on or a, a fear or a just it's like the market will bear more than what people are charging. 
if you demonstrate to the client, hey, here's the value and here's what differentiates my approach or my company or my finished product from the norm, you know, there, there's money on the table to be made and it, you don't have to do any more countertops. <laughs> you just, in some cases, it's providing more value. In other cases, it's simply explaining the value that's there. It, it doesn't require, you know, any additional work. It doesn't require any additional innovation. It just simply requires you to communicate with the client because the vast majority, and I'm going to start getting wound up about this. After my <laughs> 23 years of selling countertops and with a hundred competitors in Portland, I, I was, I was always anxious that someone was going to figure out what we were doing and copy us. And, and I, I marveled at the, the unsophisticated nature of my competition. And when it came to, when it came, came to selling, it's just like, don't you people know if you simply explain to these people what you do, even if it wasn't any better or different, if you simply explain it, you could probably increase your price by 10 to 15% and change nothing in your business. But so the common, how, would you, how would you do that? Let's, let's give folks maybe some examples. What are some things that you, that you, how did you explain things differently that helped you achieve that? Well, we first thing we would do is qualify. We we tried to screen because there 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 seemed to be you can kind of segregate the market. There were people that were looking for the best price as a commodity, and then there were other people that were looking for value. I mean, the, the, and and it was not didn't take a lot of work up front to to discover that. And so we had what we called a qualifying script that all of our office staff was required to use. Just a few simple questions. How'd you hear about us was very telling. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your project. We would inquire a little bit more, you know, if they were putting their house on the market to sell because the realtor told them they had to. Well, that's an, that's, that, they're, that, they're not going to live in the house. If they were putting countertops into their dream home for the first time in their lives, how many times have you bought countertops was another one of the questions. Right. And if it was never before, and this was for their home, we could begin to derive and then we would be working towards our sort of the, the real question. Well, what do you hope? And we literally, this was in the script. It was like question seven and eight. Number seven, what are you hoping to pay for your countertop project? And that would tell us, well, if they, and one of the other things that would be very telling is if the first question out of their mouth was, what was your, what's your square foot price? We're like, okay, well, we had an answer for that. We don't do square foot pricing. Yeah. Then we'd say, well, what are you hoping to pay for your kitchen project? And if they said 2,500 bucks, we would then proceed to, you know, basically question slash statement eight. Well, what we found is a typical countertop. And this is literally scripted. I've said this, taught our staff 10,000 times. Typical kitchens, you know, seven to $11,000 when you include all of the work to remove and disassemble and dispose of and reconnect. And then in our script, literally, in parentheses, it said pause. When we would tell them the range, they were not allowed to talk until the customer had replied and sometimes people went like oh that's like twice what i was hoping to spend fantastic there's a lot of companies in portland that that can help you with that we specialize in a very high level of service and convenience blah 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 whatever the script was so then people that, that essentially past that screen now we knew we had a highly qualified client and then our goal was to schedule an appointment so then to answer your question what we would do we had we called the eight standards of excellence i don't know if i've ever even done a podcast on this maybe i have maybe i haven't but we basically had eight unique differentiating uh parts of our business and it wasn't and this was what was so astonishing to me. It wasn't that nobody else in the marketplace did what we did. It was that nobody else ever communicated. And so we would simply work through these eight standards of excellence. And because so many people were buying countertops for the first time, no one had ever taken the time to educate them. And so these eight standards were just aspects about our business. We'd kind of built our business around that client that countertop replacement scenario. And we would just very simply, it wasn't extensive, but we would just say, well, here's what we do. Here's what the industry norm is. Here's how we do it differently. Here's what the industry norm is. Here's how we do it differently. And, and we routinely charged 
10, 15, 20% more um, than other quotes that they had gotten. And, and so that's how we, that's how we did. And we were always pushing the limit. Um, how do we, I, I had been in a business group with a guy that um, he owned a renewal by Anderson um, a window replacement company, huge, massively successful. This guy was an amazing sales guy. And they had a, a, a metric in their business where if their close rate rose above a certain threshold, I don't remember exactly what it was, they immediately raised their price because they were always trying to be in this sweet spot of maximizing what the market would bear relative to the work so that they could maximize their profit. And I, I, we weren't nearly as technical or systematic in that, but that was still the goal is to let's push the envelope the furthest extent possible to see what the market will bear. And I was always surprised that it, it, we were always surprised what it would bear Yep. when the conventional wisdom was why are people charging $39 a square foot to do this when you can get 89 yep. all day long? I, it, 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 why are you? Anyway, so that, that's, I guess, the, when the pricing question comes up, that's probably what's behind it was just being mystified. And, you know, that Portland might have been a unique market um, uh, relative to other markets. Um, but and I guess that's what I would want to convey to the audience is, is even just by default. And, and sometimes this, you have to suspend your disbelief and and defy conventional wisdom. And just I'm telling you, the market will bear more than you think it will. Mm-hmm. And, and it, but it's a risk. You've got to take that. OK, well, how much? And well, that's a there, there's. Anyway, so that would be my answer. That was a long-winded answer to the question. Well, it's a, it's a phenomenal answer because you hit all the key points, okay? Um, you know, you, you're talking about, first, let's talk about the risk. You know, there's some areas of the country I'm talking to where we're already starting to see a little bit of slowing. Mm. Um, and I'm hearing about a few isolated layoffs here and there, different reasons. Um, but a lot of the areas of the country are still going strong. So while things are still strong, it's a great time to experiment with this. It's less risk, Okay. You wait till all of a sudden you've got excess capacity in your plant and you can't fill it, then it's a lot higher risk to have this conversation. So <laughs> I think I think the risk is a great point. But you know, if we kind of wind back a little bit, you know, you've in order you put together a system, you had a script, you had a way of qualifying the customer. You didn't walk in and try to sell a product and push while you were great. You tried to understand where the customer was coming from. And you were able to do that because you knew what you had to offer that was similar to competition, but also some aspects were different. And we'll talk about some of the different aspects in a minute. But you started off listening to the customer and you spent some time educating the customer. One of the things I tell folks all the time is people change jobs more often than they buy countertops. They buy more houses, they buy, they buy more cars, they buy, and everybody... You can go anywhere on the internet and find out how to get a job, how to interview for a job, how to buy a car, how to buy, you know, all that's out there. There's not much out there about what the countertop process is like and what's the customer's role in making sure that they're going to be proud to show off this crown jewel in their kitchen at Thanksgiving or Christmas or when they have their next party on Saturday night or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, the shop that I ran was 95% B2B, business to business, only 5% retail, right before the recession. And we decided we made a conscious decision to go to a 50-50 mix. And so what a big part of our success was we spent a lot of time doing just exactly what you're talking about. And we qualified the customer and we spent a lot of time educating the customer. In fact, we went so far... This was in the, the alts, so it, you know, the internet wasn't quite as ubiquitous and strong and, and spread as it is today. So we were using hard copy, just brochures with key metrics, um, key uh, steps in the process, uh, some graphics, that kind of stuff, make it easier to read. But we made sure folks understood what their role was and making sure that they were going to be happy when it was done because we educated them. Uh, and I think the, the the qualifying the customer and then educating them on the process, I think are two really big keys that, that do it that a lot of people just don't even think about these days. Yeah. Well, and it's, and this probably could take us down a whole nother rabbit trail 
rabbit hole related to pricing, and I will do my best to not go down there. But but what you said, I think, is really key. And this is from a strategic standpoint and understanding something that the competition doesn't understand. A lot of people, at least at the retail level, are buying countertops for the first time. So you've got this, this, this dynamic. I don't think most fabricators appreciate the opportunity in that, number one, to educate and stand apart simply by educating what the process is. It doesn't even have to be a great process. If you simply communicate what the process is, it's going to be noticeably different for the client experience. But on the other side, you've got this, this similar dynamic. A client who's buying for the first time has no idea what to expect. And I believe over 23 years of selling countertops to retail homeowners makes a lot of assumptions that aren't true. Because they've never been through it. And they they assume, and, and I used to use this analogy all the time, well, you know, you've got HVAC, you've got plumbing, you've got electrical. Let's just take some of these trades that are governed, governed by apprenticeships, uh, union sort of guidelines, training that's necessary, um, certifications. You can't do this work without the training and that certification. So there are safeguards that sort of create a uniformed outcome for the, the customer. And it's a safeguard to them. Stone industry is like the absolute opposite end of the spectrum. Great point. And, and 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 it's and we used to call it the Wild West. And so, Mrs. Jones, if you've never bought countertops before, you have no idea how varied the outcome could be. <laughs> you think because everybody's buying that slab of whatever from the same supplier, we're all quoting the same slab from the same supplier, and and they're making this assumption because it's the same slab from the same supplier that the experience getting the countertop and the finished products also going to be the same nothing could be further from the truth and so a fabricator that understands that position that the client's in is hungry for education and is in his i don't want to say ripe for <laughs> taking advantage of but the message of just simply explaining your own process is going to be unusually impactful to that client because most of Absolutely. the other fabricators are talking to are not telling them anything. Uh -huh. and, and we used to hear that. And this was where I, I guess kind of pivoting back on what I said, I, I, I was always anxious. Someone else is going to figure out what we're doing. Why has, why is nobody else doing what we're doing? Because we would hear over and over and over again, we've talked to three other fabricators and nobody has told us anything. We would, right up until the day I sold the company last summer, we were still hearing that frequently. And, and I think it speaks to this, this, this message or this topic that we're at. You know, there's such a huge opportunity for fabricators to convey what it is that they do and then charge accordingly. You don't have to do any more work. Your process doesn't have to change. <laughs> and you might be able to get and here's the other interesting thing when you look at pricing i was trying to explain this to a, a client the other day let's just assume you got a 10 percent profit and i think that's actually a stretch for a lot of i mean it's just a tough business low margin high risk 39 bucks a square foot hard to <laughs> hard to generate a profit at that so let's just assume you got a 10 percent profit you may only have to make a so let's just say that 10% profit is $10,000 a month as a baseline. You okay. may only need to increase your price by 10%. You could double your profit with a very small and incremental price increase because it all goes to the bottom line. And the impact of pricing on the profit is so profound. Oh, absolutely. And, and, that's that statement is true if you're already making a profit or at least break even. If you're losing money, then that's not true. But you're exactly right. If you're already past break even, absolutely that can happen. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have. It, it's not like this this straight line carryover impact. You don't have to double what you're charging to double your profits. You may only need a five or ten percent price increase to double your profits. Yep. Um, and. And that's just looking at pricing. Think about the example of the company I was talking about that was doing like 40% plus of porcelain. And you look at, they can only do so many of those jobs a week because they're using a bridge saw for all their miters. And then they put in the miter machine and now they can do 
four or five times that a week. And then they start looking at just by making that investment. One of the reasons that that saw paid for itself in just a few weeks was that they were able, because they were already at break even, the additional volume they were able to get through the shop with no more people, just making that one investment, they were throwing a lot more volume through the shop. And so the throughput, the cash that those jobs generated was all going straight to the bottom line. And yeah. that's that's how you can change your process and get that. But then if you go back and you do that analysis, looking at how much cash each type of kitchen configuration generates, and then look at your market and say, okay, I know that this type of work generates cash for me faster than this other type of work. How can I go get some of the good stuff? And you can make just a small shift in your product mix and, and you can start multiplying your profit if you can do that effectively. Easier said than done, but it's certainly the potential is out there. And I've seen companies do a lot of that. Yeah. And then that, <laughs> that reminds me of the, the converse of what I'm talking about. You, you might get the impression that we had this all figured out. And, and as I look back now, there was a certain, I took that too far in terms of that relationship between maximizing the volume and the capacity where, where we would have been better served, I believe, to have had a, the, the contractor mix. We charged almost as much to our contractors as we did for our homeowners. And, my, my, and I think this was a flawed approach. I re, looking back now, seeing how we manufacture at NOLIFT, it's a completely different manufacturing environment. And has some different dynamics to it, so it's not a perfect correlation. But I see where I, 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 I failed to take advantage of. We had all of our overhead covered by a retail business, and we could have charged less for that contractor business and got more of it, and taken advantage of what you just explained in terms of increasing the volume to leverage the overhead and the throughput. And I was too, <laughs> I guess. Maybe I can, I can understand. I just was at the other end of the spectrum. Other people are at, you know, let's lower the price. I was at, let's make it as much as we can to our yeah. own, you know, it, it detriment. I, I think looking back that, that we seeing those segments of the business more separately and the value that, that, that other segment, the contractor business could have provided in a higher volume. And I just was unwilling to lower the price. Um, it's too stubborn. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had something. Well, part of it is you had something that was working for you. Okay. I mean, the, the approach that you were taking was better than your competition. You're able to make good money doing what you did. And, you know, when you, you know, it's easy to say that nothing succeeds like success, but success can also blind you to other opportunities. Yeah. And I, that's a, to just a human trait. I mean, we're, we're all human beings. We're not perfect. And so I think, the, you did a lot of great things from what you've described, a lot of the things that, that I recommend to folks. And, you know, it's part of the challenge is, is if you've got somebody from outside looking in, coming in and saying, hey, are you sure that's the best way? And, you know, we've talked about a couple of different ways to look at metrics. There's even a, a, an additional way, which I don't want to get into the details of right now, but where you look at this throughput dollars for job and look at if you look at install as kind of your, your ultimate bottleneck in the business, you can't put any more, you can't, you know, sell any more tops than you can install, okay? Right. Um, and you start looking at the throughput dollars per install team hour and compare that to how fast you burn cash. And when you start doing a, a sort of all your jobs and do that throughput dollars per hour metric, you get a classic Pareto curve. And what happens is you start understanding what causes that curve to be the way it is and take things down on that skinny low dollars per hour part and take that capacity and start to fill it with some of that higher dollars per hour. You're talking about multiplying profit. That's, that's certainly there to the extent you can make that shift, but you got to understand those dynamics. And so I think part of what we're talking about is, you know, you and I talk a lot about working on your business versus working in your business. And if you're consumed by your business, fighting fires all day long, there's no way you can step back and start to make these kind of changes. You've got to carve out time to start working on your business so you can start taking advantage of some of these things we're talking about. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just make a plug for what you just explained and to anybody that's listening that is that is in that scenario of being, you know, just 
uh, super busy and, and maybe too busy. We talk about these concepts maybe a little bit more fluidly because we're so familiar with them. And, and maybe it's easy f- it's easier because we're just familiar. Someone who's maybe not quite as familiar might be thinking, okay, I, th- I think I get what you're talking about, but I'm so busy doing other things. I may not have time to invest in, in unraveling that myself on, on the side and where the value of, you know, coaching and the value of this consulting coming in and being, because the, it may just be a, a minor shift of the dial. Just let's just tweak a couple of things in the business here, whether it's pricing, whether it's the customer throughput capacity. And all of a sudden the whole financial dynamic changes. It doesn't require a wholesale, you know, overhaul of the business. It's just getting a couple of these things dialed in. And so you see the impact on the the, the, the business and the impact on the profit makes whatever that coaching or consulting fee would be. It's like the best investment you could possibly make. It's such a small investment in terms of the impact long-term. And then you annualize it and you go, what's the impact over the next five years? It's so huge. So anyway, I just am going to take the time to say, if you are intrigued by this, fellow fabricator, stone shop owner, this concept that there might be little things in the business you could adjust, make sure that you reach out to Ed and, and, and have a conversation about this because it, it may not be as out of reach as you think. And you can make some minor changes that could have major impact on the profits and, and the business itself, the health of the business and the long-term viability of it. So I, yeah, these are, this is, this is gold. <laughs> this, is, this is bread and butter gold. Oh, I love this conversation. What else? Hey, to, have, to have Aaron Crowley get on the podcast and tell folks to call me is, is mind blowing. Okay. Because the reality is, you can call Aaron and we're not here to sell coaching and consulting. Okay. The, the point is, is you got there are a lot of resources out there to help fabricators. There's a lot of great member groups where you get a lot of peer to peer learning. You can do one-on-one with folks like, like Aaron and, and me. And the key is pick somebody you're comfortable working with and who talks about things in a way that it makes sense to you and go talk to them. Any of us who do this kind of work, we're happy to have a conversation with you. Spend uh, an hour, hour and a half with you and just kind of understand what you're dealing with, make some recommendations and, you know, for no obligation. And then if you want to go further, fine. If you don't and you got enough, that's great too. You know, we're all here to help. The, the key is, you know, you know, obviously, Aaron, you've owned a shop for a couple of dozen years. Um, I ran a shop for a few years. I've owned my own business in another industry. And I think one thing that's really common about both of us, we, the one of the things we have in common is we really want to help people in this industry. It's got a lot of challenges, it's got a lot of demands, but there's a lot of upside if you can start to just carve out an hour a day to look at things a little differently in your business. Find somebody you relate to, give them a call, talk to them, see if it works for you. That's a hundred percent agreed. It, it's a, this, it's a tough way to make a living. And if, if, uh, yeah, if you'd like to make it a little bit easier, there is a, there's a lot of help out there and a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity to make adjustments to the business that will do that. That makes the job, you know, <laughs> work less and make more. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Well, absolutely. Just like the title of your book, right? Work less, make more. <laughs> <laughs> Nice plug there. I like how you slipped that one in. <laughs> well, well, you, the, the, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the, the thing I keep thinking about is, okay, the next, you know, 12 to 24 months is going to be a challenge for a lot of us. You know, a lot of us lived through the Great Recession and we have an idea of what's coming, but there's some folks that didn't, maybe weren't running and owning a business back then and they're not, not really prepared for what's coming up. And I would challenge you to all think about things that we're talking about here and other sources of information you get from Slippery Rock and users groups and Facebook groups and that sort of thing and take advantage of that and get ready. Um, if you And also I would encourage, and I think you kind of heard this from some of, of the things that Aaron said, is that you're going to get a lot of pressure sooner or later to start reducing your prices, you know, with inflation and with the economy and all that. And hopefully what we're doing is giving you some, some tips and, and techniques to where you can resist that a while. Um, I also want to share, you know, one of the things, I live in kind of a rural area in South Carolina, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a farm boy. My dad grew up on a farm during the Depression, so, uh, you know, I like, uh, you know, homemade sausage and stuff like that. And I got a local guy I go buy my sausage from. 
And I went to see Rick uh, last year and was buying some sausage. And he said, man, he said, I don't know what to do. He said, price of my stuff's going up like crazy. Price of hogs is going up. I don't know if I can, if I can stay in business. I said, Rick, please raise your prices. <laughs> he looked at me like I had lost my cotton pig in mind. And I said, he said, what are you doing? And I said, Rick, if you don't raise your prices, you got a business, I can't buy your sausage. I love, you know, my dad owned a meatpacking plant for a while and made sausage. I used to, to, to work in that plant, my first manufacturing job I ever had. And I said, your sausage is my 87-year-old dad's favorite sausage in the whole world. You go out of business, I can't take him something he really likes. You know, please raise your prices. And, you know, if you're providing value for customers, you're making customers happy. The same thing's true for everybody here. Yeah. And that, and that's such a great message that, you know, we, I think, underestimate how much the customer values what it is that we do. And, and I think there's the fear of, of losing it if we raise our price. But you had mentioned sort of a first, uh, at least the note that I took here, you know, kind of step one right now, we're in an inflationary market where people just assume the price is going up. So this time right now is the time, the time to begin to dip your toe in this risky water of price increases. There's never going to be a better time to justify. I mean, not that you need to justify it. If your costs are up, your price has got to reflect that. Um, but what would be a next step? So number one, getting this in, this is a good time to start raising your price, price testing the market. What will the market bear? lower risk right now because there's a lot of work and people expect price increases. So that's number one. What would be another step, sort of a secondary step then to, to how to put those price increases, how to evaluate them, how to, how to approach that? Well, a um, couple of thoughts. One is to do the evaluation that I talked about where you look at you know, your basic rectangle, you know, quartz, 3M, 3CM quartz type kitchen that's really simple. How much of that can you do uh, in a day or in a week versus the raised bar top, you know, um, porcelain type work and do the analysis that we talked about earlier. But I think uh, along with that, I think taking uh, take a page from your script, your actual sales script and how you qualify a customer and start to change your mindset for how you approach prospective customers. I think that um, will buy you a lot long-term, what the, the, the analysis I talk about helps quantify the intuition that you already got, which helps you make good decisions. But a great tool that, that you threw out there was that whole sales script and how you walk through that mm-hmm. and knowing what you, what you offer, how you do things a little bit differently than your competition. One thing I can tell you is that if you start playing the low price game, what that is is a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And you know what the reward is for getting to the bottom first? you're probably the first one out of business. Uh. There's always somebody out there who can do it cheaper than you. You know, the the classic example in in a lot of construction industries, a couple of guys with a pickup truck working out of a rental unit with no overhead and paying cash to their employees and not doing W-2s and stuff. And it's nothing, I mean, that's a totally different business model than having a showroom and equipment employees and all that. You can never compete with that. So don't try. Play to your strengths do some basic fundamental analysis, doesn't take you long, and then learn how to sell differently. I think those are just, uh, if I were to just pick two or three key things, that's what I would recommend. Yeah, that the aha moment for me was a, I guess it was a seminar put on by a guy named, um, oh, Tim Ryan. I think his name was Tim Ryan. He was called the Wizard of Ads. And he, he was a, um, consul- a, like an advertising consultant and he did, he did the voiceovers for some very successful companies up here in the Northwest on the radio. I always thought it was the owner of the company. It turned out it was this guy yeah. and he came to Portland and did this seminar on basically advertising and sales. And what he's, I'll never forget this. He, he said that data suggests, and, and it is fascinating that Something happens in small business, in business, small business, and and the customer interaction that you've got about 50% of the market, the customer base is what he called transactional or price driven. And the way he described it is like those people, if they realize they could have saved one penny with an alternative, they'll literally lose sleep that night just over the fact that they could have got it for cheaper. 
It's about 50% of the market. He said the other 50% of the market is relational, meaning they they value a whole bunch of other things, not value in terms of like the best value, meaning the best price, but the value that they get by doing business with a company that far more components than the price. Price might be four or five on their list of priorities. I mean, it's not not important, but it is not the most important thing. So he said data suggests it's about 50-50, but he said the price-driven customer is overrepresented because they price shop. They'll go visit five people and ask them, what's your best price? Where the relational buyer, if he can find one referral from a person he trusts for a provider that he doesn't, he didn't have time to shop. I don't got time to go get five quotes. I got time to get one. My wife wants it. I got to get back to business. You can take care of this please handle it. I don't really care what it costs. I just want it done. (laughs) Unfortunately, most business, this is what this guy, Tim, um, I think it was Tim Ryan. Anyway, he was called the wizard of ads. Maybe you Google that if you find this guy. Anyway, he said most business owners, unfortunately position their business because they perceive the entire market to be the transactional price driven customer when that's only half the market. Meanwhile, they are ignoring the other half of the market that would be happy to pay in some cases, significantly more than the transactional buyer for the value that they're looking for. And, and that to, to, and you kind of have to just go on. I mean, you, you just kind of got to trust that that's the case and position your business according or begin to dabble in that. And that's where that qualifying comes in is trying to parse and, and, and segregate, okay, the price, the transactional people, we just we can't serve them. We got to get them out of, we don't have time to deal with them. Let's try and narrow the focus on the, the relational buyer who values value and is willing to pay us more. Um, and if you think about it, the, for, the, for, the, for all of that total population of customers, whether they're the price sensitive price shopper or not, the one question that's, that's in the back of the price shopper's mind is in the front of the other non-price shopper's mind. And that's, when I get done with this, am I really going to be happy with how my kitchen looks? And what you're gonna, what your script does, what you're qualifying the customer does, you're educating the customer does, helps them feel comfortable that you know what you're doing, you're legitimate, and you're gonna do what it takes to help make sure that as a as a homeowner, you're gonna be happy when all is said and done. It may cost you a little bit more, but it'll be worth it. And, and that peace of mind, I guess, is how I describe that. And I think you are a thousand percent spot on in terms of what dominates the cut. At the end of the day, there's a, they're, they're taking a risk. They're going to pay somebody for something they don't understand. And they're hoping that the outcome is, you know, is unlike maybe other contracting experiences that they've had. And for a lot of people, they've been negative. You know, they hired this guy and he was a flake and it didn't get done right. They didn't get a time or whatever. And so there's this sort of defensive to be able to communicate that to that client and, and resolve some of that unsettled, unknown fear about what the outcome is going to be and whether or not they're going to be happy or not. That, that's like people, I mean, why do people buy insurance? Well, it's to safeguard against the unknown. And I guess a higher price then would be another way of looking at that certainty, or at least the higher likelihood that they're going to be happy at the end of the job. And think about the, the price shopper. You know, it, it, let's say a price shopper assumes because of past interactions with other construction type trades, they've had unsatisfactory results. Therefore, they want the best price because they know the probability of success is low, or maybe mm-hmm. it's 50-50. And so you may be able to take a price shopper and convert them into your customer if you handle the interaction the way that you described Crowley's Bennett did. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, you're right. Some people are, aren't, nec- yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it kind of goes to, okay, so why are they a price shopper? Well, some people are wired that way. They're just who they are. But there's a lot of people that are price shoppers because they're trying to minimize risk. Yep. Help yep. them minimize risk. Don't make it based on price. Make it based on what you do best. I never thought about that. I'm going to be unhappy no matter how this goes. I might as well pay the lowest price. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, when you think about it. Yeah, that may, actually makes a lot of sense. uh, and so many people have had bad experiences with two guys in the pickup truck type contractors that 
Yeah. It's not gone well. And the, and the client, it, it, they're at a disadvantage. There's no recourse for them in a practical sense. There's very little they can do yeah. to, to recover from one of those bad experiences. You just take it in the shorts and go, well, that, yeah. <laughs> that's. And we're not saying that every company that's got two guys in a pickup truck do, do bad work, but that's, it's a different business model. And you can't, uh, a company with a showroom and a shop and equipment can't compete with that. Okay. Right. And, and yeah, there you know, been a lot of experiences where some folks like that have not done good work, but we're not saying that those guys are necessarily doing subpar work. It's just a different business model. Yep. And because you've got a shop and you've got experience, I mean, you've got equipment and you've got employees and, and all the rest of it, you, you've got to play to that strength and what that does for you. And that's kind of, that's what we're talking about is how to leverage that in your favor. Yep. Yeah. And most, and most businesses that are, defined by those metrics you just used the, the showroom the legitimate shop the equipment <laughs> paying you know unemployment and, and workers comp and all the legit taxes for the payroll you know all those things most likely there are there are things that you're doing in your business if you're that company that are unique and worth explaining to the client to a satisfactory degree that they would be willing to pay you more for that. You may not, you may think you're no different, but you most likely, if you stopped long enough to assess, you know, what are we proud about? What, what is it that we sort of uh, pride ourselves in? What, 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 what do we maybe intuitively or subconsciously um, know that we just do well, man, a little bit of time thinking through that and, and saying, hey, have we done a good enough job explaining that to the client? Or could we do a better job explaining that to the client? Now, again, coming back to our topic with the ultimate goal of raising your price to reflect the value. Because if you're doing, here's another, here's another way to look at this. If your cost structure is like that, where you just got all those expenses and that overhead, it's just math. You cannot afford to compete with a guy that doesn't have that cost. Exactly. Yeah. Um, on, on the other hand, you have got to be able to, I just lost my train of thought. That was a great, great, extremely. Um, <laughs> must but but really you've got you to be able to help folks understand the value that you provide them, you know, and, and then it goes back to, to part of it's managing the risk of being totally upset with no matter what you spent. Because every day you go in to make coffee or cook breakfast or whatever, you're going to look at the results of that transaction, you know? Yep. Yep. Well, if that thought returns, <laughs> it'd probably come back to me tomorrow night or something. But anyway, yeah, you, you've got to, um, you got to align yourself in such a way with the client to maximize it. I was doggone it. That was a really good thought. We were talking about that inherent value. Oh, okay. In the same way that you need to cover the math and the costs with your pricing, you also need to be charging for that value that you are providing the client. It just, it, it's, you got to do it. And if you can convey it, you can justify the price. If you can explain that and um, it, you're worth fellow fabricator, stone shop owner, you are worthy of charging for what you do. Amen. It, it is okay to charge more than you're currently charging. It is okay. And I would suggest that you follow you know, Ed's advice that now is the time to start raising your prices just as a matter of course. Uh, what, what, what's an appropriate, you know, like, uh, what would you say is a, is a, is a if you're going to take some sort of a, an incremental approach to this, just saying across the board, okay, well, let's, Let's start. We got to start somewhere. Where where should somebody start in terms of that price raising metric or percentage? The, or? the, the folks that I've worked with, I've, I've actually done some of the analysis that we've talked about, some of the mathematical analysis, and then looked at specific types of materials that have gone up more than others, and looked at the ones that are having the biggest impact on they they they're sucking up, consuming more of that capacity, and therefore not turning back enough cash to justify it. And so we've been strategic based on the analysis. Um, you know, if, if you're not going to do the analysis, you got to do something, then I'd, I'd start off with, I'd do probably the boiling the frog approach, you know, start off with about 5% now, and then a couple of months, 
do another 5% and then start getting it to track with what your material costs are going up and your consumable supplies are going up and your labor and just kind of just gradually do those and say, hey, look, you know, our, our silo stone went up, our cedar stone went up, our granite went up, you know, and, and just keep doing that is, is what I would do to, to get started. But the key is you've got to do that. And we've talked about the whole sales and marketing side of things and the pricing structure. We've not talked at all about the operational side. And I know we don't have time to get into that, but there are some things operationally, not just in how you make the tops, the whole miter machine thing we talked about, but other things like, you know, you had a really good short template to install lead time. And there are lots of other things that we can talk about that, that you're probably doing, you take for granted, it's different than some of your competition that you can then go out and leverage in your business as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, one of the other th thought just occurred to me as we were talking, you know, this, you, you got to manage risk, you know, and if you'd raise prices too much and your sales volume drops, now you're not utilizing your capacity and that cost that you've got and you're worse off than when you started. So there's a point you could take this too far. But maybe another thought is, is and this has to do with pricing on just sort of another aspect of it is the upgrades and the add-ons and the, the um, what we call, we used to call upselling. Is, is what, you know, the customer came in for a kitchen, however, what, you know, whatever this, the material was, whatever the shape was, whatever the complexity was, that was what their primary goal was, not knowing that, hey, we could do a couple of bathrooms for you. We could do a waterfall panel on this. We could offer you a, something I learned from um, Jeffrey Gran and Steve Precision Countertops. This chip minimizer, they were like, Oh man, you guys got to add this chip minimizer. It's 250 bucks a pop. You'd be shocked at how many customers will opt to put basically to go from an, an, an eased edge on the undermount sink to a five equivalent of a five eighths radius. Uh, I swear we, we, we just we didn't do anything other than we put one in the showroom and then just gave people the option. We didn't even try and sell it. It's like, Hey, what's a chip minimizer? Well, you know, when you're banging pots around one of the biggest service calls we get is chips on the undermount sink from people slamming their, their, their pots around. For 250 bucks, you know, we can put a chip minimizer on there, which is a radius on top of the sink. And oh, I bet I bet we were doing three or four thousand dollars a month right out of the gate simply by off. Maybe no, that 25, that would be. I bet we were doing 10 to 15 of those a month. So whatever the math is on that, 250 yeah. bucks, two, two, maybe two to three thousand dollars a month instantaneously went to the bottom line. We didn't have to, we didn't have to sell another job. We didn't have to go to another job site to template. We didn't have to run another project or have slabs delivered two or three grand, just like yeah. that. Absolutely. You know, so being it being just, that's another place where you can, with less risk, you can play with your pricing with these upgrades and just see, Hey, if you're not getting the vanity anyway, you got nothing to lose. Well, Hey, we no. can do that vanity for another 850 bucks. If you're charging 500, maybe charge 750. If you're charging, you know, uh, 500 for the backsplash, raise it to a thousand. Just see what, you know, see, you, you could play with those options and upgrades where there's a lower risk of losing the job. You just maybe won't get the option. Um, yeah. A lot of, there's a lot of opportunity there to generate more dollars, the throughput um, without increasing the actual workload. Um, I wouldn't say at all but it's pretty insignificant compared no. to the revenue that it contributes to the, you no. know, the bottom line. Yeah, I agree. There's a program I've heard about. I hadn't looked at, I think it's called hot sauce or something like that. It's a structured way of doing that kind of thing. And I think it's got spits for the salespeople and that kind of stuff, but yeah, just, just upgrades and add-ons will certainly add, add to the profit of a job. No question. Yep. And that's in fact, yeah, that's, that's Jeffrey Grand's um, one of his many businesses, that hot sauce program where okay. he, pretty compelling where some of these companies that are in really low margin, high volume, it's like they're doing the countertop and the profits made on the upsells. Mm -hmm. um, you, you cannot rely on that low, low margin, super competitive work um, to, to generate the, the net income and the net is made on what you can add on to that job. And it's pretty compelling, um, pretty compelling. So, so there's some good strategies out there. And uh, I think the, the bottom line is listen to what we've talked about go out and look at others, talk to people because over the next couple of years, you're going to need some of them. Yeah, for sure. And like, like you had alluded to, we'll go ahead and put that article that you had mentioned 
Um, we'll also put your website into the show notes here. So fellow fabricator, if you want to reach out to Ed, just go to the show notes. There'll be some links to this article and links to his website. You can reach out to him and, and continue or maybe for some of you, maybe it's to begin a real conversation, but for others, maybe it's to continue this conversation to see how this can positively impact your business so that you can uh, <laughs> work less and make more. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> hey, that's what it's all about, man. Work smart, yeah. not hard. That, that's right. Well, hey, Ed, thank you so much for coming on the Fab Lab podcast. What a treat. What a privilege. And uh, as always, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and um, I hope we can do it again sometime. Man, I look forward to it. It's been all my pleasure, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity to, to come back. I'm, I'm glad I didn't wear out my welcome last time. <laughs> Not even close. Hey, take care, Ed. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Eric. Yep, bye-bye. Bye. Well, fellow fabricators, stone shop owners, I, I hope that you took a lot away from that interview. I hope that you are now thinking, understanding, and beginning to strategize how you might reapproach this topic and this conversation of pricing within your own business. What are you going to do? When are you going to do it? That's the question. You got to raise your prices. You ought to be charging as much as you can possibly charge. You ought to be charging as much as the market will possibly bear for the work that you're doing, for the risks that you're taking, for the expertise you have gained and acquired over the decades. Fellow fabricator, you need to be charging as much as you possibly can for the work that you do so that your business is profitable and so that you're successful. So make sure you check out the show notes. You can read Ed's article. It's linked down below. You can visit his website. It's linked down below. You can also check out the sponsor of the Fab Lab podcast, noliftsystem.com. Until next week, happy fabricating.